a recent guest on Climate Conversations, Anthony Tony Gleason, was one of those who disrupted yesterday's grand final parade in Melbourne. It was reported that some 100,000 Australian League football fans turned out for today's grand final parade, and Tony, along with two friends, stopped the parade. They stretched back across the road and glued themselves to the roadway. And Tony, who is 70, said such protests, such interruptions to popular events would not be necessary if the government did the right thing about addressing climate change. Welcome to Climate Conversations. This is the latest episode, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Here is an audio report from the Melbourne Age of the event which saw the grand final parade momentarily stopped. Protesters glue themselves to road during grand final day parade. Environmental activists glued themselves to the road in a brief and unsuccessful attempt to disrupt the grand final day parade. The group pulled banners across William Barak Bridge and three protesters sat in front of the car procession at around 11.20am on Friday. Security officers acted quickly to disband the flash protest and the parade continued on to Yarra Park after a delay of a few minutes. The activists wore t-shirts that said, Climate breakdown has begun, referencing a statement made by UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres earlier this month. The t-shirts also said, Can't play footy in 50C, a nod to the impact of global warming. Melbourne is forecast to reach 29 degrees on Saturday, which would make it only the fifth AFL grand final in history to be played on a day above 26. The highest temperature recorded was 31.3 degrees for West Coast versus Hawthorne in 2015, followed by 30.7 on a Carlton and Hawthorne grand final day in 1987, then 29.8 for Fitzroy and Richmond in 1944, the Bureau of Meteorology said. The protest occurred as Collingwood and Brisbane players travelled in a convoy of Utes through Yarra Park. The players approached Jollymont Station before entering the AFL Footy Festival zone, finishing at a stage near Gate 3 at the MCG. More than 100,000 people turned out for the annual event, which was accompanied by stunning weather. Fans have embraced the return to the motorcade parade route after last year's experiment on the Yarra River fell flat. The activists, part of an international movement to draw attention to the impact of climate change, chose a location close to the MCG precinct to stage the action. Extinction Rebellion protester Catherine Strong said disrupting business as usual was the only way to convey the message that immediate action was required to prevent disasters from global warming. Strong said those disruptions would include events we know give the community a lot of joy, such as the grand final day parade. If our actions are considered extreme, we would argue that ordinary citizens should never have been put in the position to feel so desperate that they must take these steps, she said in a statement. Government and media must step up to do the right things. Activist Anthony Gleeson, 70, said in the statement that he was a lifelong Collingwood supporter and didn't take the decision to disrupt the parade lightly. I am prepared to risk arrest to draw attention to the fact that our government is not doing anywhere near enough to save us from runaway warming, he said. And you'll find a link to the Tony Gleeson episode in the show notes. Now I urge you to listen to this. Around the world, governments, investors and businesses 
are committing to ambitious action to reduce carbon emissions, to limit global temperature rise, and stop runaway climate change. The goal is net zero by 2050. But what does net zero mean? Net zero emissions means balancing the greenhouse gas emissions created and released into the atmosphere with the emissions removed from the atmosphere. Some parts of the economy, for example, making cement, are very challenging to decarbonise and may never be able to completely stop creating emissions. This means other parts of the economy will need to reach negative emissions. That means they no longer create greenhouse gas emissions and also do things to actively remove emissions from the atmosphere, such as planting new forests. A net zero economy is achieved when the sum total of activities results in no net increase in emissions added to the atmosphere. We must cut emissions added to the atmosphere in half by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. In order to achieve the global goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. To learn more about net zero and what it means for your business, visit energybriefing.org.au. Next, we have a story from Michael West Media, and the story is written by Suzanne Arnold and has the headline Smoke and Mirrors Budget. Forest and koalas are great, but logging and money are better. The story begins. In June this year, the New South Wales Government rejected renewing funding for the Forest Management Improvement Program, the FMIP, which essentially monitored state-approved native forestry operations, the CIFOA, the Federal Regional Forest Agreements. The Natural Resources Commission, the NRC, was charged with responsibility for the program by the Gladys Berejiklian Government. The NRC was charged with developing and overseeing 20-year monitoring, evaluation and reporting plans for the CIFOA and regional forest agreements. The blow graph of the role played by the NRC demonstrates the extensive scope of the program. Young people are stepping up to defend the environment, well, really defend the world. Listen to this story now. Defending their rights, six young people from Portugal. This week, their six-year battle with 32 European governments comes before the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, the first case of its kind. The six, now aged 11 to 24, say their human rights have been violated by government failure to tackle climate change, and they say judges will finally hear the case in a year of calamities linked to global warming. In Portugal, o que nós temos mais é ondas de calor e seca, seca extrema que é em cárceres fatais. Ou seja, este calor está a infligir diretamente o nosso direito à vida e também um outro direito muito importante que temos dentro do caso, direito à vida privada. The young people aren't demanding money, just that the governments change their policies and behaviour. O que eu sinto mais é a frustração perante a não ação dos governos dizerem que isto é um problema secundário e não poderão dizer que é um problema primário. Proteger o planeta é tão importante como proteger a nossa economia. Tudo está ligado. The group who are being assisted by the NGO Global Legal Action Network may have to wait 18 months for a verdict. If they win, governments will be legally bound to strengthen climate action. And other young people may feel even more motivated to demand a better life on the planet. 
Come on now, let's spend 90 seconds listening to Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Climate change will cause more intense droughts, extreme flooding, and crippling heat waves in many parts of the world. In response, some people may become climate refugees. But Aylan Benvenist of Harvard University found that as conditions become more extreme, it will get harder for many of the world's poorest and most vulnerable people to move, so some will be unable to escape. It's costly to move, particularly if you're going to move further away, and especially if you're going to move across borders. Climate change-driven heat waves, droughts, and floods can damage crops and destroy houses, pushing low-income people even further into poverty. Extreme weather could also make it more difficult for just one or two family members to move away and send money back home. What that means is kind of a double whammy. You have climate change impacts in origin communities in those locations, but you also have limited options of having access to credit that is being sent back to origin communities because migrants are not being able to leave in the first place. So Benvenist says that as much as the world is focused on climate refugees, we also need to pay attention to people who cannot afford to escape climate disasters at all. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Let's listen now to Patricia Carvelis talking on Australian Broadcasting Commission's breakfast program about emperor penguins. We've heard a lot about the record loss of ice around Antarctica and the impact that's having on polar bears, on penguins and seals. Emperor penguins are particularly susceptible because they raise their chicks on sea ice that is melting before the young birds can swim and thousands have drowned as a result. Scientists fear this will lead to the extinction of some penguin colonies, but new research reveals that this may not be the case. Michelle LaRue is an associate professor at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, and is one of the authors behind this new study. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Before you undertook your studies, what was known about the emperor penguin's habitat? Well, it was very basic. We really just had this idea that, you know, every time we fly nearby an emperor penguin colony, we always see them on the sea ice. And so we had this very basic understanding that um, they live on the sea ice, but we didn't really know much more than that. Okay, so that's it. Um, That's not a lot of knowledge. So we're trying to build (laughs) it, obviously. A few months ago, it was reported that as many as 10,000 penguin chicks had died because of Antarctic sea ice was melting earlier than usual. Is that the biggest threat the birds face? Um, That's a really good question. So the work that we did here suggests that um, emperor penguin colonies around Antarctica live in these kind of different pockets or neighborhoods of fast ice characteristics. So what it seems to be happening is that they can kind of have a little bit of what we would call behavioral plasticity and be able to uh, um, deal with and adapt to changing environments because some of these locations have very large fast ice extents, so they might have to walk really far, and some places don't. Some places have, um, you know, kind of steeper bathymetry, so the ocean uh, depth is a little bit different. And so because we were able to look in these different locations and see that they have um, quite different characteristics that they're dealing with suggests that they may be able to adapt uh, a little bit more than we originally thought. That's That's a very positive story if they're able to adapt. Your research suggests that they're 
there the Emperor Penguin's reliance on fast ice may not be as strong as first thought. Just explain that, though. What is fast ice? That's a great question. So fast ice is called fast ice because it's fastened to the Antarctic continent. Um, and so what basically happens is that Antarctic continent and then um, kind of outlying icebergs or islands kind of act like glue and and hold it together. Um, and that's the type of fast ice or the type of ice that the emperor penguins are literally sitting on when they're raising their chicks. And that's differentiated from the pack ice, which is out in the middle of the ocean. And so previous research... Um, actually quite a bit of previous research suggests that the pack ice extent, so that stuff out in the middle of the ocean, may have an impact on their survival. And so what we're saying here is we're looking literally at their homes. We're looking at where they're sitting on the ice, um, on this fast ice, and saying, okay, what are those characteristics? Because um, obviously, if they don't have a place to sit, then that's really bad news. But what we're suggesting is that it's more nuanced than that. It's not just, you know, fast ice presence or absence. There's different characteristics of the fast ice that allow them to kind of hang in there and uh, raise their chicks. Has the species always lived in diverse environmental conditions or have they adapted? So it, it would suggest, I don't know exactly the answer to that question, but for to the best of my knowledge, um, it does seem that they would be able to adapt and kind of, of move around. They're a long-lived seabird, so they can live upwards of, of 20 or 25 years, um, and they've been evolving for millions of years um, and dealing with lots of different um, you know, climate changes and things like that. And so we would think that they would be able to move around um, and deal with the kind of the situation at hand. And that's really what we're seeing with with this study as well as, you know, kind of depending on where they are around Antarctica, they're able to deal with what they've got. Is there some hope here? Do you, do you believe your research will help stop emperor penguins from going extinct, which is the threat we've been warned of? Yeah, I don't know if this study necessarily is going to say one way or the other, but what it does suggest is it, that there's more to the story. Um, the one thing that I do want to take note of is um, that the the locations where these animals are in these different regions, there doesn't seem to be a difference um, between where they are in that region and then and where they're not suggesting they could move. But what I want to point out is there's a couple things in this research that we weren't able to include. And very importantly, one of them was prey. And so we would think that these animals are going to be competing potentially with each other. So across different colonies um, for different prey items. And that's one thing we weren't able to account for. Um, and so I want to kind of keep that in mind. It's not necessarily that they can just kind of move willy-nilly no matter what. Um, there's a little bit more to the story, but this gives us a, that insight to to do some more research. It, so there there is more work to be done, but some hope. I just feel like we we cover these stories and they're often so bleak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do think I do think this lends a little bit of hope because, um, like I said, we used to have this kind of just broad idea that, oh, they're living on the fast ice and, and that's kind of it. And really, there's a lot of nuance to the way the fast ice forms, um, how long it sticks around. Um, you know, what kind of uh, physical environments they're living in. And it's very diverse around the continent. And so that's really interesting. And it does suggest that they have a little bit of plasticity. Um, and so for me personally, I think that does does provide a little bit of hope. Um, it still uh, doesn't negate the fact that we really need to do something about climate change because that's still going to be a massive problem. But um, kind of in the short term, it suggests that they may be able to adapt a little bit better than we originally thought. Thank you so much for joining us this morning.
Thank you for having me. Associate Professor at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand, Michelle LaRue. And at the start of the interview, we, we said melting Antarctic sea ice was affecting polar bears. They, of course, live in the Arctic, which I know you know because you've told me on the text line, but you are correct. And here we have another 90 seconds from Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. As the climate warms, the risk of wildfire is growing. So over the past decade, residents of Topanga Canyon, California, have been fireproofing their community. Trained volunteers visit residents' homes and make recommendations. Ryan Olyade of the Topanga Canyon Fire Safe Council says that fires in the area typically start when embers are carried in by the wind from elsewhere. Imagine a million matches being flung at your house. What's going to catch on fire? So he says it's important to keep leaves out of gutters, put a fine mesh over attic vents, and avoid wood mulch. Because the community has taken widespread action, Topanga was recently recognized by the National Fire Protection Association and CAL FIRE as a firewise community. The designation allows residents to get a discount on their insurance. But the biggest benefit is reduced anxiety. Olyate says that when his family evacuated during the Woolsey Fire in 2018, the work they had done to reduce their fire risk made the experience less frightening. We were able to evacuate with the feeling that there's a good chance that when we came back, our house would still be there. And that, in that kind of a stressful situation, is a good peace of mind to have. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Join me now where we have a story from Scientific American, and the story is by Andrea Thompson. It has the headline, A record number of billion-dollar disasters show U.S. isn't ready for climate change. The story begins. At the end of this August, the U.S. had already set a new record for the annual number of billion-dollar disasters, which continues to trend toward more and costly calamities occurring since the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration began tracking such data in the 1980s. At that time, a disaster causing at least $1 billion in damage hit the U.S. about every three months. Now that happens about every three weeks says Adam Smith, a NOAA climatologist who helped track the data. Let's go now to a story from The Environmental Magazine. It has the headline, How Are Heat Waves Affecting Wildlife? The story begins. It would be hard to ignore the heat waves that have plagued North America, Europe and Asia in recent months. If you did not experience them yourself, chances are that you read about them or their effects. Abnormal thermal extremes like this have become more regular, intense and long-lasting over the last few decades as global temperatures have risen. In addition to their severe consequences for vulnerable human communities, heat waves have a drastic effect on many wildlife populations. While there is no single consequence felt by all wildlife populations, heat waves universally disrupt the ecosystems where they occur, which, due to their interconnectedness, of biodiversity has implication for all living things. Let's move now to a story from UN News. The headline of the story is Guterres calls for phasing out of fossil fuels to avoid climate catastrophe. Countries must phase out coal and other fossil fuels to avert climate catastrophe, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned on Thursday in New York. 
We're hurtling towards disaster. Eyes wide open, he said. It's time to wake up and step up. Mr Gutierrez was speaking to journalists at UN headquarters following a meeting with civil society climate leaders from across the world. He said limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius is still possible, but will require a 45% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. However, current policies will lead to 2.8 degrees Celsius temperature rise by the end of the century, which spells catastrophe. He called for immediate global action towards net zero emissions, which must start with the polluted heart of the climate crisis, the fossil fuel industry. Next we have an opinion piece from Christiana Figueres, and it's on Al Jazeera. The headline for the piece is, I thought fossil fuel firms could change. I was wrong. More than most members of the climate community, I have for years held space for the oil and gas industry to finally wake up and stand up to its critical responsibility in history. I've done so because I was convinced the global economy could not be decarbonised without the constructive participation. I was therefore willing to support the transformation of their business model. But what the industry is doing with its unprecedented profits over the past 12 months has changed my mind. Let's remember what the industry could and should be doing with those trillions of dollars. Stepping away from any new oil and gas exploration, investing heavily into renewable energies and accelerating carbon capture and storage technologies to clean up existing fossil fuel use. Also, cutting methane emissions from the entire production line, abating emissions along their value chain, and facilitating access to renewable energy for those still without electricity who number in their millions. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to feel along. Now, don't forget to check out the show notes because I've got a screen full of stories. I can't possibly include them all, but I've put as many as I can in the show notes, so please go there. I'd urge you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And beyond that, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at number 7 at icloud.com. I want to know, don't hold back, good or bad, please tell me. Also, I'd love you to share this podcast. Share it with your friends, share it with anybody you know. Please let them know what's going on with the climate crisis. It's really important because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Yes, please share it. So, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Yes, and you take care.